Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we come now to your word, having already received immense blessings, great joys. Thank you for how you have met with us. Thank you for how you have touched us. Thank you for how you have changed us already this morning. Father, we now want to hear your voice through your word. Please come, meet with us through the word preached. Overcome the weaknesses and inadequacies of the one who preaches and of those who hear. And may the voice of heaven be heard in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if your Bibles are still open to Psalm 82, I should probably say right up front that I'm going to be talking about politics this morning. Uh, You don't hear that very often around here. And in fact, there are probably some of you who, as soon as I said that, had a negative reaction. What in the world are politics doing in the pulpit? Well, the fact is that politics are in the Bible And if it's in the Bible, then it deserves to be in the pulpit. Uh, It must be something that God wants us to think about. The psalm that Danette just read in your hearing is written about political leaders and what they are called to do, what they are called to, to be, especially as it relates to the poor, to the afflicted, and to the oppressed. This psalm is written to them and about them as rulers, but it's also written for us as God's people in order to help us to know how to think, help us to know how to pray, how to, how, uh, to help us to know how to live rightly in this crazy world in which we are called to live. Now, we're not going to talk about politics separate from or in place of the Bible, But we are going to try to talk about it informed by the Bible, informed by the light of God's Word. Now, I'm very aware, very aware, acutely aware, deeply aware, I might say painfully aware, that in talking about politics, we are stepping out into a topic about which there's lots of disagreement. And the congregation that is in front of me here this afternoon is full of people who have very different views as to how best to address, in particular, areas of justice and poverty and need in human society. Among us here are those of a more politically conservative variety who believe in small government and whose focus when it comes to matters of poverty and need, whose focus would be on the responsibility of individuals. Individuals need to get a job, make something of themselves, pull themselves up by their own bootstraps with whatever help family, friends, and church can give to him or her along the way. They are to individually make it. But then there are others of us who are of a more politically active or liberal persuasion who think more that the focus needs to be on community, on 
corporate and national political responsibility to help each other get there. These would argue, as I heard someone put it recently, that before someone can pull himself up by his own bootstraps, he needs to have some boots. And these would say it is up to the community, up to the social system to make sure that everyone has some boots. One group looks at a poor man and might be inclined to see a person who isn't doing enough, while another group would look at that same poor man and might be inclined to see a community or a nation that is not doing enough. Both, I believe, have truth in them. And I am convinced that when both personal responsibility and community national responsibility are joined together, then there is hope. The psalm in front of us focuses on these matters, and its particular focus is on the role of government in the needs of the poor. This is a psalm addressed to those who rule. And we read in verses 2 through 4, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Notice, notice the language here. This is the language of justice and of rights. Those that are in power, verse 2 says, are no longer to judge unjustly. These are judges, these are rulers, these are kings, these are lawmakers and law enforcers, and they are not to judge unjustly. Verse 2 says, they are not to show partiality. They are not to make decisions based on the appearance, the, the face, literally in the Hebrew, based on the face of the people that are in front of them. Not the, not the looks, not the color, not the race, not the background, not whether or not that person is a friend. There is to be no partiality. They are, in verse 3, to give justice to the weak and the fatherless. The word speaks of a just defense and legal protection. They are to maintain the right, verse 3, maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. They are to do what is right, maintain what is right, maintain the rights of those who are poor. Psalm, uh, Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and the needy. And then the psalm says to us that they are to rescue the needy. This is in verse 4. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. These are actions of righteous rulers and citizens and neighbors and nations. Rescue and deliver. If a ruler sees someone trapped in poverty, the psalmist says it is his job 
to rescue that person. It is his job to deliver that person. This is not about charity so much as it is a commitment to do whatever it takes to deliver people from the enslaving bondage of poverty and destitution and need. And to set people free from wicked and unjust other people who are oppressing them and taking advantage of their poverty. This is a psalm teaching us what government's role is and by implication what our role is as citizens in a country, as, as neighbors to those who are around us, what our role is in caring for the poor, for the widow, for the fatherless, for the immigrant, for the refugee, for the oppressed making sure that they are treated justly. That rulers and we are making sure it happens that they are being rescued and delivered. Now, let me, let me say two things right now. Number one, uh, I have way, way more to say than I have time to say it which a last-minute decision Alex and I conferred in the office this morning just before worship and decided this is going to become two messages. So we'll come back to part two next week because there's no way I can get it all in today. Secondly, you're going to be tempted, as I am, when hearing what the Scripture says about these things you're going to be tempted to immediately ask all the complicated, complex questions about how to apply what the Scripture says. You know what I mean? You're, you're, some of you are already doing it, just based on the little bit you've heard already. But what about this? What about that? I, I, I want to ask you and challenge you to delay all the questions about complexity and application. Let's just hear what God's Word says. And then we'll get to application as we carry out our life together as a church. But let's just begin. Let's hear what God's Word says and then wrestle with the very complex, very difficult issues by way of application. So, uh, Delay those impulses, exercise massive, spirit-filled self-control. Don't go there, just stay here. Stay with me in the text as we explore these things together. Here's, here's my summary statement for this passage, and we're going to be looking at a number of texts this morning to fill out this passage. My summary is this, political powers and nations are called to treat the poor with justice and to secure their rights and their release. Political powers and nations are called to treat the poor with justice and to secure their rights and their release. Now, as we look at the text, it's, 
It's going to be relatively easy, I think, to show that political powers are supposed to treat the poor with justice. What we might struggle to understand is what that means. What is justice for the poor? Uh, because the psalm doesn't really define that. The psalm assumes, the psalmist assumed when he wrote this uh, to a Jewish audience, to a Hebrew audience, that they would know the Torah, they would know the law, they would, they would know what justice for the poor is. But we can't make that assumption today. We may not, many of us, have any real understanding of what God's law says about caring for the poor. So we're going to have to fill it in a little bit with what I'm going to call a bill of rights for the poor. A bill of rights for the poor. So there are going to be 10, 10 rights that the poor have that belong to them, I believe, as God-given rights. We'll go through about half of them this morning, and we'll see where the Spirit leads us as we uh, try to decide where to cut this off. So, right number one. The poor have a right to government protection and provision. The poor have a right to government protection and provision. I, I want to make sure this is well established in our minds. Because to be honest with you, for many years of my life, I didn't believe this. For many years of my life, I believed that the care of the poor was not government's business. Now I'm convinced it is that they are to be involved, and I want this established in our mind. First of all, in the text itself, we read, as we saw earlier in verse 2, about those who are judging. This is talking about government officials, judges, rulers. They are those who judge. In verse 7, they are called princes. In verse 8, there is reference to the nations. These are national leaders. These are rulers and princes of the nations. Interestingly, they are actually called gods. In verse 1, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Verse 6, I said you are gods. This is, this is an interesting reference in Scripture to rulers. Some people think it's referring to demonic rulers and powers, but I don't think so because these are, these are gods. These are rulers who die, verse 7. And uh, if you go back to Psalm 58, they are rulers who are born. These are, these are human beings. These are, these are not demons. These are real human beings who are called gods. And they're called gods either because this is almost a sarcastic reference to the fact that they think they are God, or I think more likely it refers to the fact that because they rule, they are God-like. God is a ruler. God is the ruler. God is the sovereign. God is the potentate. He is on the throne. And he is on the highest throne. And human rulers who, who sit on thrones, they are God-like in that they are ruling, but they are not God with a capital G. They are, they are kind of these lowercase gods. They, are these, they have a little bit of godishness about them without being God himself. And, and so these are rulers, and these are ancient kings over all the nations of all the earth, and they are told, give justice to the weak. 
Rulers of men are to be protectors of the poor. Rulers of men are to be protectors of the poor. This is a primary reason why God puts authorities in place. It is not so they can have their own agenda. It is not so that they can accumulate power. It is not so that they can accumulate wealth. It is not so that they can make a name for themselves. They are put into power. They are put into authority so that they can serve. And they need to serve those who need to be served the most. That's what government is for, among other things. That is what government is for. Now, I want to make sure we see that this isn't just this one text. I want us to see that you find this in a number of places in Scripture. Just back, if you just want to turn back to Psalm 72 real quickly, we'll see it in verses 1 through 4. Psalm 72, give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he, the king, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he, the king, defend the cause of the poor and the people, give deliverance to the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. Verse 10, may the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him, all nations serve him. Why? For he delivers the needy when he calls the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy and saves the lives of the needy from oppression and violence. He redeems their life and precious is their blood in his sight. This is what good kings do. This is what real godly rulers do. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. The, the law of Moses was a law that was given by God to help the people of Israel know how to govern their country, how to govern the land. And it's interesting to me, it's really the only government that is personally, directly created by God. God rules over all governments, but the nation of Israel back in the law of Moses was the only time God says, I'm going to create the kingdom, I'm going to create the government, and here's what it's supposed to look like. And it's loaded with protections and provisions for the poor. God is seriously concerned about the needs of the poor. So that when the people of Israel failed to do this, well, God was not pleased. And so we read in Amos 2, for example, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. Israel faced the judgment of God and the wrath of God because they did not take care of the poor. But it wasn't just for Israel. Remember Job in the Old Testament? Job was from the land of Uz. Job actually lived before Israel was formed as a nation. And he was a ruler. He was a judge in the land of Uz. And, and he used to sit in the gates. If you have ever read the book of Job, you'll notice that. And that means that he was, he was a judge there. 
And he describes his work as a ruler. He describes his work as a leader in Job 29. When I went out to the gate of the city, that is the place of rule and authority, when I prepared my seat in the square, when the ear heard it called me blessed, when the eye saw it approved. Why? Because... I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me. I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame, father to the needy. I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I broke the fangs of the unrighteous and made him drop his prey with his, from his teeth. Job said, this was my role as a leader. This is what I did as, as a leader in the land of us. I took care of the poor. And if I found people, if I found wolves and lions who had their fangs in poor people, I crushed them. I took care of the poor. I made them drop the righteous, the poor, the needy from their teeth. Or you go to Proverbs 31, a text I won't read, but I encourage you to read it. Proverbs 31, where there's a king named Lemuel, who almost certainly was not an Israelite king. But he is told that he is to, as a king, he is to protect the poor and the needy. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4? This man was a powerful king who, who's dominion had grown and expanded and he he got proud and he got arrogant and God just came on him with judgment and God punished him and one of the reasons we read in Daniel 4 is because Nebuchadnezzar was not practicing righteousness or showing mercy to the oppressed that's why he got spanked by God and then you have Sodom if I were to take a poll here and ask you, why did Sodom and Gomorrah get destroyed? My guess is that 90 out of 100 would say because of perverse sexual sin. And that was part of it. That's not the reason given in Ezekiel 16. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid, literally did not lift up and strengthen the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Among other reasons, because they did not aid the poor and the needy among them. We could go on. The nations of Damascus and Edom and Ammonites are, are judged by God in Amos because they threshed people with hardship. They took people's homes and their belongings. Instead of blessing people, they showed no pity on people. It goes 
on and on in Scripture. The governments are called, even in the New Testament. Paul stands in front of, front of King Felix and he rebukes him and corrects him because he's not showing justice. And then in the book of Revelation that we heard from, Revelation 18, the, this political power of Babylon is, is condemned and judged by God because it was exploiting people in order to gain riches. Folks, we need to just get this in our minds as a biblical teaching and a bit of a corrective for my own thinking. The poor have the right to be protected and provided for by government. That's, I think, clearly a biblical principle. That's right number one. Right number two, the poor have a right to respect. The poor have a right to respect. No matter how poor, no matter how destitute, no matter how hungry, no matter how ragged and tattered a human being is, no matter how needy, no matter how weak, that human being is made in the image of God. That human being has all the digni dignity, all the worth, all the value of any and all in this room. Every poor person has a right to respect, has a right to our full respect, has a right to be looked in the eye as a fellow human being, an equal human being. And if that poor person is a believer, as many poor people are in this country and around the world, our brothers and sisters in Christ, they not only have or should have our honor and respect as being made in the image of God, but they are sons and daughters of God. They are redeemed by Jesus Christ. They are loved by Jesus Christ. They share the same name that we have. And James says, James says, we are to show honor to those that God honors. These are heirs of the kingdom of God, James says. So when you look at a poor person, any poor person, you are seeing a reflection of the majesty of God. Look in their eyes, look in their face, and stand in wonder, human being made in God's image. And if you see one, a poor man or woman or child in the church or someone who is a believer, look in their eyes and say, man, woman, child, for whom Jesus died, who has been adopted into the family of God who has been made an heir of God, who is a joint heir with Jesus Christ, who will one day sit on a throne alongside of Christ and give them honor. Every poor person has a right to respect, high respect, dignity and honor from us. In a world that treats poverty as if it's a shame, in a world that treats people and those that have little as if they are inferior. Here is a call to us as the church. Let us be different. Let us be different. Let us be those who do not, do not in haughtiness and pride elevate ourselves at the expense of others. 
And every time the question of, I'm getting off my notes here, I'm just going to do it. Every time the question of poverty comes up, every time the question of how do we care for the poor, how do we provide for the poor comes up, don't go to criticism. Don't go to haughtiness and pride. Go to love and go to honor and go to respect. For there is a reflection of the being of God himself. The poor have a right to government protection and provision. The poor have a right to respect. And the poor, in the third place, have a right not to be blamed. They have a right not to be blamed. Blaming is injustice. Unless unless a person is poor because he or she is just downright, outright lazy and is able but unwilling to work, unless that is the case, the poor is not to be blamed. And even if that is the case, before you blame, find out why they are like that. Because there's a story. There's a story. When we blame, when we falsely accuse of laziness or failure, those who are trapped in poverty and oppression, we wrong them. It is unjust. It is unfair. It is ungodly. Because contrary to what we might think, poverty and need are most often not the fault of the person in need. It may be caused by tragedy or injury or systemic laws and structures and unjust oppression through years, decades, and centuries of disadvantage. There may be many factors that go into it. And blame not be one of them. Tim Keller has a very, very important book. In fact, we're going to have several copies of this available for you next week. It's called Generous Justice. would plead with you to read it. In this book, he argues that poverty is a very complex thing. It cannot be treated simplistically. And he, he uses the study and work of a man named Mark Gornick, who was a leading community advocate in Sandtown, which is a section of Baltimore, Maryland. You will remember it's where Freddie Gray died tragically. And Dr. Keller cites the work of this Mr. Gornick as he has spent many years there in Sandtown, Sandtown uh, helping and serving the community. And the work has shown this. And let me just read down through this. I, I just think it's, a, it's, a, it's an important summary 
It helps to reshape the way we think about blame. It says, if you, if you trace the history of Sandtown going back 60 to 70 years, you'll find that the neighborhoods to the east of town were set apart for white immigrants and those to the west were restricted to wealthy whites. So African-American refugees that were migrating to the north from the oppressive south were forced into the impoverished section of Sandown where the only jobs were low-paying domestic jobs working for the wealthy, where many white-owned businesses wouldn't hire blacks, where landlords shoehorned people into overcrowded and substandard housing, and as a result, the people barely survived. Then, in the 70s, industrial and manufacturing jobs disappeared even further, and the only decent jobs were in the suburbs, where the poor couldn't afford to live and where transportation wouldn't go. Besides, these decent jobs required advanced degrees, which the poor could not afford, not to mention that they would have been ill-prepared since their poor neighborhood schools were so inadequate and so weak. So, all that was left were very low-paying jobs with no health benefits or retirement or job security, making it barely worth working at all. This led, of course, to poor education, poor health, poor chances that anything would change. And to make it worse, landlords and banks exploited the poor, redlining them to keep them out of better neighborhoods and rejecting their loan applications. So that as the desperation rose, crime rose. Businesses continued to move out and in their place came gun and drug dealers check cashing centers, liquor stores, and porn shops, everything that only makes matters worse. Then freeways were built, slicing through city neighborhoods, isolating those neighborhoods even further so that the more wealthy could come into or go through the city without contact with the people in the city. And it could go on. It could go on. Not even to mention um, the history that precedes in terms of Jim Crow and slavery and all the rest. If this is all a child or a community ever sees, ever experiences, I wonder how are they to escape? How were they to escape? Where are the boots? Where are the boots? Where is the hope? Dr. Keller says that the research and narrative make a convincing case. The poverty of an inner city neighborhood, and I would say other locations as well, was that poverty was not initially the product of individual irresponsible behavior or family breakdown. 
a complex range of structural fa factors led to the exclusion of these residents from the resources they needed in order to survive. And so for us, and it grieves me to think about it, as I think back through my life to times when I would see news reports and I would hear about the poor and I would just so callously, so flippantly, so carelessly, so disrespectfully, so ignorantly just dismiss it as they need to get a job. They, they've got to do something about themselves. Oh, my friends, it grieves me. It grieves me that such arrogance is in our hearts, in my heart, such blaming of others. The poor have the right not to be blamed. The poor have the right to be understood. The poor have the right to be heard. The poor have the right not to be blamed. So much more could be said, but my time's up. So here's what I'm going to do as I close. As we think together for these couple of weeks about justice and the rights of the poor, let's keep in mind that what we're talking about is being like God. What do I mean? In Psalm 146, we read these words about God. Listen to this. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On the very day his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. That means the refugees and the immigrants and the travelers. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, O church, O people of God, your God will reign to all generations. Praise the Lord. This is who God is. This is what God is like. So that when we, in our own fallible, weak ways, when we seek justice, when we seek 
justice for the poor, when we seek the needs of the poor, when we seek to rescue the poor, when we seek to come alongside of the poor, we are being like God who has been doing this since the beginning of time. God's heart is for the poor. God's heart is for the needy. God's eye is upon the weak, upon the destitute, upon the widow, upon the fatherless. His heart is for them. And if our hearts are for them, we are like God. This is, this is a great privilege. This is a great privilege. And, and, and Tim Keller, he, he says it, and I, I close with this. Tim Keller says, when the world sees us doing evangelism, they just see us recruiting. When they see us doing justice, they see God's glory. When they see us doing evangelism, and we ought to do evangelism, Don't do justice without evangelism. Don't do caring for the poor without giving the poor Jesus. Don't do one without the other. But when they see evangelism, they see recruiting. You're just trying to add to your numbers. But when they see justice, when they see love of the poor, when they see you laying down your life for others, when they see you literally giving yourself into a poorer standard of living so that others can be lifted up, They look on and say, glory, where did that come from? And then, 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 they look a little higher and they see where it came from. And God gets glory. This is in part what Jesus had in mind when he said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. That's a New Testament phrase for love of the poor and the needy, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. When we commit ourselves to justice for the poor, to caring for the needy, to respect for every human being, no matter how ragged and tattered they are, the world watches and the world says, glory to God. And keep in mind, this is what Jesus has done for us. Though he was rich, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 9, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor, that we through his poverty might be made rich. We're just being like Jesus. When in fact, we love the poor and the needy. For Jesus loves the poor and the needy. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You're one of them. Poor and beggarly in your sins. Doomed to hell. And he who was rich became poor. In a cradle. No place to lay his head on a donkey, on a cross for you. May it be that we will, out of hearts awed by the gospel, become people whose hearts are moved to compassion, that we treat others even as we have been treated by Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Oh, Heavenly Father, if any of us here are experiencing any measure of conviction of sin, a calloused heart, a hardened heart, a blaming heart, would you please, by the ministry of your Holy Spirit, lead us through that conviction to the cross where forgiveness is found. But then by that same Spirit, please don't let the conviction vanish. Don't let it disappear. Tie it to our hearts. Bind it to our conscience in a way, O oh Lord, that we will make real, substantial, compassionate, heartfelt commitments to be individuals and families and a church and a nation that make the poor a priority so that we will be like you and like Jesus who gave himself for us. Father, may your blessing go on us. May your peace go with us. May your love fill us. May the riches of your grace help us to feel this week the incredible wealth that we have in Jesus. And may your kind hand meet every need of every person in this place this week. And if it need be that that need be met through us, make us willing. Make us eager. Lord, be with us. Lord, keep us. Lord, guard us. Lord, watch over us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us today for worship. May God bless you. May God be with you. Enjoy some fellowship. Don't come back here next week. Go down the road. Amen.